0: It's 6 o'clock, and you are tuned to Community Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. California students will have to wear masks when they return to school this fall, but the state will leave it to individual school districts to decide how best to enforce the mask mandate and a new state report says that smoke from the 2018 campfire might have been more harmful to the health of people living downwind than initially thought. These stories and more on tonight's California Report. After a look at regional headlines and weather, Paul Emery and retired Federal Reserve senior economist Gary Zimmerman talk about the latest Fed meeting and some of the policy decisions recently made. We close our newscast with a commentary from Mark Cudaberti.
1: This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. California health officials have backtracked on how to enforce masking rules at schools in the fall. Yesterday, the state issued a mandate saying that K-12 through students who aren't wearing a mask would be barred from the classroom, but would be offered alternative educational opportunities. Now, the state will leave it up to schools to decide how to handle students who aren't wearing face coverings. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports. Sports.
2: Only students with specific medical exemptions or disabilities that prevent them from wearing a mask will be exempt under the new rules, which take effect immediately. California is taking a stricter approach than the CDC's latest recommendations, which do not call for universal masking. Dr. Naomi Bardock heads the state's Safe Schools for All plan, the experts who help districts provide in-person school as safely as possible. Bardock says CDC rules allow older students to be masked or unmasked Masked, and that's a problem. It really opens up the possibility of stigma, of bullying. It's a contentious topic, masks is. And so we actually would like to allow schools to open in a way that is actually a less controversial environment. The state calls universal masking the best way to both avoid the need for physical distancing in classrooms and also help head off the spread of variants. Schools will need to provide face coverings for kids who don't have them, and schools should also find a way to educate students who won't wear a mask if they aren't allowed on campus. Masks will be optional outdoors at schools. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. If you
1: think we can start relaxing our guard when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic, just consider these numbers. In Los Angeles County, public health officials say there have now been four straight days in which more than a thousand new COVID cases have been reported daily. And over 99% of these new cases have occurred among people who are still unvaccinated. Officials are also seeing a rise in the number of people who are becoming seriously ill because of COVID. As hospitalizations and the the county are nearing 400 for the first time in months. But so far, the death rate has remained relatively low. In neighboring Orange County, hospitalizations have more than doubled over the past two weeks. While the numbers are concerning, they are still far short of the massive surge in cases during the fall and winter.
3: Support for the California Report comes from Hint fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org and Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing defendable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare.
1: Long before the existence of Twitter, Facebook and Google and revelations about the government harvesting Americans' personal data, the San Francisco-based Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, was fighting for people's civil rights and privacy online. The EFF is the leading US nonprofit defending people's civil liberties in the digital realm. And after a bit of a delay because of the pandemic, it's celebrating its 30th anniversary. The California report talked to the EFF's executive director, Cindy Cohen about its work and how it's changed over the decades.
4: It's shifted a lot in the last 30 years. I I think EFF has grown along with the Internet, um, both in terms of the size of the organization and in terms of the issues that we've needed to address. You know, the first rough decade was really focused on making sure that the Internet was respected as a place of free speech, um, as a place where we could have privacy, and the, the threats to it were largely from the government. So, you know, we worked to free up encryption so that you could have a private conversation online. We worked to make sure that the internet was recognized as a place of free speech right away. You know, it took 40 years for movies to be recognized as free speech. We only got video games recognized in 2011. Um, but the internet was recognized by the Supreme Court as a place of free speech, you know, almost in its infancy for, for, for popular use. And that's you know, that didn't just happen. That was a lot of work to try to frame the digital revolution in a way that would make sure that we had our constitutional rights.
1: And if we fast forward to today, are you more concerned about big tech companies being a threat to civil liberties than big government?
4: Well, I think that they are they are working together. I think that one of the things that is a little phony is this idea that there's a difference. I mean when the government wants to surveil us, they go to the companies, right? It's the fact that Google knows everything about you that's is why the government can go to them and do these things mm-hmm. called reverse warrants where they get everybody who's in a particular location first and then try to sort out who they're looking for second. Or the NSA can go to AT&T and tap into the network and look at everybody's traffic as it goes by and pick out what they want second. The good news is that the Supreme Court is starting to recognize some of this. They have said they're chipping away at this thing called the third-party doctrine that says that when you give your information to a company, you relinquish all Fourth Amendment interests in it. And the Supreme Court is has signaled pretty clearly that that's that's a doctrine that's on its way out. So there is some good news there, and we're beginning to see privacy laws. We have a lot more work to go, but i i i don't I don't think the distinction really matters very much for most of the things that people care about.
1: I'd like to turn to a California-centric issue. Uh, This year, the state started enacting the California Consumer Privacy Act, which makes it easier for people to find out what kind of information private companies are collecting about them online and petition to have it deleted. EFF chose not to support the act. Can you tell me why and how you feel about it now?
4: You know, we were neutral on the law. We thought it had some loopholes in it that made us nervous, and 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 we were we were also worried that that there were you know we had a, a bill that we thought that was better called the Privacy for All bill. I I, I think the fact that the that the people of the state of California continue to vote for privacy is a good thing. Now we need to make sure that the thing they're voting for will actually give them what they want, or else people are going to feel disempowered and i think the jury's still out on the new law and how that's going to come out but uh but we're going to work with whatever gets passed to try to push it for as much privacy as possible we're not sitting on the sidelines here at all
1: all right that is cindy cohen the executive director of the electronic frontier foundation which is observing its 30th anniversary cindy thanks so much for joining us
4: thank you so much i'm a huge fan of the california report so this is exciting for me
1: And that is the California Report for Tuesday, July 13th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.
0: Nevada County announced today that thanks to an allocation of a quarter million dollars by the Board of Supervisors to promote post-pandemic economic recovery, all the eligible small businesses who applied will receive a micro-grant of up to $5,000 from the Nevada County Relief Fund. The Nevada County Relief Fund's fifth round of grant-making was entirely funded from the county's American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, allotment. Last month, the Board of Supervisors set aside nearly $6 million of ARPA funds for the purpose of community and economic resiliency. It's gratifying to see this money from Washington go to where it's needed most right now, our small business community, said Board Chair Dan Miller. I applaud the resiliency of every small business in Nevada County who weathered the pandemic. It's great to walk around our business districts and see people smiling again. And taking a look at the weather, finally some cooler overnight temperatures. In the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, tonight, clear with a low around 65. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 91 degrees. In the Truckee Lake Tahoe region, tonight will be clear with a low around 51. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 85. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 57 degrees. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 90. Next, Paul Emery and retired Federal Reserve senior economist Gary Zimmerman talk about the latest Fed meeting and some of the policy decisions recently made. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, Wealth Management Advisor with
5: Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Well, Gary, let's start with uh, the Fed policymakers' uh, their decision from the June fifteenth and sixteenth meeting. What did the Fed do with the short-term interest rates at their meeting, and and that's uh, going to hold? I guess hold the rates to zero, or are they going to change them?
3: Well, Paul, Cong- Congress has given the Fed two important monetary policy goals. One is essentially, you know, full employment, and that in in June twenty twenty one, you know, based on policymakers' projections is expected to be in the range of 3.5% to 4.5% of the labor force. And in June, the unemployment rate actually moved up a bit to 5.9% of the labor force. So the economy still has quite a ways to go to get back to that full employment number after the COVID-19 recession in 2020. And that that recession, of course, caused the loss of over 20 million jobs in a matter of weeks. And we're still down about 6.7 million jobs from that February 2020 uh, peak. So uh, that's you know a ways to go in the labor market. Um, in terms of inflation, you know the Fed's inflation goal is two percent on average. Um, and, you know, we've seen some recent upward movement in the trends in inflation data. Um, you know, clearly those would have been discussed and analyzed at the meeting by the policymakers. Um, but that, you know, surge in inflation in 2021 as the economy has been expanding rapidly and as you've had bottlenecks caused by, you know, COVID um, <laughs> problems lingering in labor markets and so forth. Um, you know, certainly there were lots of discussions for policymakers to try and decide, you know, what what's the issue here. And, and probably the critical issue for policymakers is is the, is the spike in inflation temporary, or is it the start of an inflationary trend that we should be worried about and doing something about? So the the June decisions had to weigh at least a temporary increase in inflation by most measures, you know, that's an increase in the overall price level of goods and services that we purchase, against the relatively still relatively high level of the unemployment rate following COVID. And the decision in June was the, no change in short-term interest rates; they remain near zero. And no changes to the Fed's bond purchase program, uh, which is designed to keep downward pressure on interest rates, longer term interest rates as well.
5: Can you summarize some of the key Fed projections for the economy this year and maybe next? Um, Like how fast are they expecting the economy to grow and what inflation rates are they projecting? And another one, when might they start raising short term interest rates? Okay, Paul,
3: yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, The projections are for very rapid growth in 2021 as the economy rebounds from the COVID recession, uh, and then strong growth in 2022, and then sort of back towards more normal growth in 2023. Uh, The numbers, you know, they're looking at about 7% uh, real inflation-adjusted gross domestic product or GDP growth. It's about four times faster than normal Uh, in 2021. um, That slows to about 3.3%, which is still very fast in 2022. Uh, And 2.4 2.4 percent in 2023. So that's getting closer to the 1.8 percent long-run growth rate that they, they also project. Uh, but still relatively r- rapid growth you know, going forward as the economy rebounds from the COVID recession. Uh, also, as the economy's growth rate slows, the inflationary pressures are also expected to lessen. So um, in terms of the inflation side, the Policymakers are going to be looking at the Fed's personal consumption expenditure uh, price index, um, which has inflation, they're projecting inflation to run at about 3.4% in 2021, uh, temporarily well above their average 2.2% inflation goal. Um, you know, and that's, you know, see that they expect that as the economy is expanding very rapidly this year, um, and but then falls back to 2.1% in 2022 and 2.2%. 2. You know, it's up a little bit to 2.2% in 2023, but it's very close to the Fed's longer run total inflation goal of um, about 2%. In terms of interest rates, it is interesting that they did move up um, when they're projecting um, the short-term overnight Fed funds target interest rate to to increase um, into now in, in 2023. They're expecting that by the end of the year 2023, that rate will have moved up from 0.1% today to, to 0.6%, so basically a, a half a percentage point increase, um, but not until 2023.
5: Uh, one more question, uh, Gary. The uh, economy added quite a few jobs in June, uh, yet the unemployment rate actually rose slightly. How close is the economy to full employment? And how is California, where we live in our state, how are we doing? Um, in terms of
3: how California is doing, the unemployment rate has fallen from a peak of about 16 percent. Down to 7.9% in May, um, as the state's economy has also been rapidly rebounding. The UCLA Anderson School of uh, Management forecast for 2021, uh, the most recent one I've seen, has you know strength in the tech sector helping, um, shows expecting faster job growth for California than the nation as a whole, um, and then you know very similar rapid GDP growth for for the state as well. So also good news, and and for the state of California, actually the the um, other, other bit of good news is that, you know, with the um, tech sector doing well, there's been lots of uh, income coming in from, from high-income folks. Um, and they are expecting a one-time windfall uh, surplus in, in the tens of billions or 20, 30 billions of dollars, maybe even more. Um, and that's, that will, you know, help with the budget issues um, that the state has had. So, you know, California looks like it's doing quite well as well.
5: Gary, thank you so much and look forward to talking with you again in a couple of weeks. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in
0: Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. We close tonight with a commentary by Mark Kuniberti.
6: Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. As the Dow Jones Industrial Average flirt with all-time highs, investors and advisors alike might be a bit miffed as their portfolio balances just bounce around like the proverbial ping-pong ball, never quite attaining the sky-high valuations that the Dow has reached. Just why some portfolios have not mirrored the stratospheric heights that the Dow has attained can have an elusive answer. COVID-19 has definitely caused some of the broader market averages to pick and choose its winners and losers, and unlike some previous market rebounds, the COVID tide has definitely not lifted all boats. Unlike the 08 market obliteration that was followed by a market-wide ballistic rebound, in the 2016 period, the Trump election, that put a match under just about every asset class in the stock market. The COVID rebound in the markets recently has launched some stocks into seemingly uninterrupted rallies while other stocks have languished. In my opinion, the COVID rebound has not been an index buyer's friend. Simply put, the COVID rebound may have been a stock picker's paradise if the investor picked the right stocks. But bipolar stock rotations has perplexed more than a few stock market participants as they watch CNBC reporting blistering rallies in the Dow, all while wondering why their portfolios have not kept up in lockstep. While most investors might just buy a handful of all-inclusive funds like mutuals or ETFs called exchange-traded funds, many of the companies in these broad baskets have not seen the increases the overall Dow index may have witnessed, and some may have even gone down. The explanation of this lies in the consumer buying patterns that have been altered due to COVID and its subsequent shutdowns. The consumer has seen his life turned upside down with COVID and procuring their needs while being shut in has required new solutions. Example of these altered buying patterns are everywhere. Stay-at-home procurement conduits such as web shopping and home delivery saw skyrocketing demand while our usual gathering places such as restaurant bars, vacation destinations, sporting events, and similar venues and locations, were for the most part off-limits. Companies that offered such wares or supplied goods or services to these establishments also suffered. Small businesses were also decimated, as were the vendors that serviced them, although people still needed to procure their day-to-day essentials and discretionary needs. How they procured them was drastically altered. It was as if a huge tide had shifted in a historic way in both its methodology and the dollar amounts that preceded it. As such, while some businesses collapsed, others could not keep up with the demand since broad index funds may have encompassed both the lucky and the unlucky however buying a basket of stocks in certain funds may have made headway difficult half the businesses in these broad funds saw their stock prices implode while the other half may have seen astonishing increases. Since the Dow is the most talked about index on the evening news, and the makeup of the Dow and how it is constructed may skew its movements upward, it may not be a true reflection of the overall economic condition. Indeed, while the Dow has almost doubled from the COVID March 2020 low, the unemployment rate is still very high at 4.5%, and some estimate 25% of small businesses has been wiped off the map. Keeping in mind small businesses about 50% of GDP, which is all the money exchanged for all goods and services in a year in the United States, that the Dow has seen such increases may have been indeed perplexing to many investors. Simply put, the Dow may not accurately represent the economy. So comparing portfolio performance to the Dow may not be a fair comparison. More importantly, COVID-19 has challenged the traditional broad-based buying that has been the mainstay of investors and advisors alike. The usual migration to mutual funds and these exchange-traded funds may not have paid off nor kept up with the certain broad-based indexes. In conclusion, the best term I can use to describe last year's market is a stock picker's paradise, while being a broad-based fund buyer's frustration. At such a time, blindly buying these broad-based funds may not have been the best strategy. Knowing where consumers were flocking to, while avoiding the places consumers were avoiding, may have been a more profitable path to riches. That does it for today's Money Matters. Indexes mentioned may not be invested into directly. This newscast is not meant as investment advice, and nothing stated is meant to ensure a guarantee or be construed as a guarantee or recommendation to buy or sell any security. The opinions expressed here are my opinions only and may not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, its staff members, or underwriters. I hold California insurance license, OL34249, and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Coulter.
0: And that's our newscast for tonight, Tuesday, July 13th. We get support from Zelmer Law Group, a real estate and business law firm with offices in Nevada City and Santa Rosa. Jay Zelmer has been practicing law in California since 1983. More information online at ZelmerLawGroup.com. And Sierra Derm Center for Dermatology, specializing in general and cosmetic dermatology, skin cancer detection, and skin cancer removal for over 17 years. Located across from the Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital in Grass Valley. New patient openings available. Information at sierraderm.com. Coming up next is Food Sleuth. Tonight, Aurora Meadows, staff nutritionist with the Environmental Working Group, will discuss recent research on the detrimental effects of food dyes and other additives on children's behavior and health. And after that at 7, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. My name is Claudio Mendonca. Have a good evening.